Good morning. Shirley, you didn't tell me yesterday you were getting baptized this morning. That's so cool. Very exciting. She's a good secret keeper. Um, it is a pleasure to be uh, back this morning with you all at BCBC. Um, th- this feels very much like home. Many of you know that uh, I had the privilege of serving for eight years, seven years, sorry, as English pastor at Edmonton Chinese Baptist Church, so your sister church in Edmonton, uh, from 2001 to 2008. And so it really is always a joy to be able to worship with uh, my predominantly Chinese brothers and sisters here at BCBC. So thank you for having us back. Thank you for welcoming my family. Uh, we're thankful for Aaron and Yolanda and their graciousness in, in hosting us. Um, I said yesterday, and I'll say again today, we uh, invade with our rambunctious, noisy family and make their quiet lives much less quiet for the days that we spend with them. Uh, but it is a privilege and an honor to be here and to share from God's Word with you. Uh, my prayer is that uh, God will use something that uh, is said for your edification, for your blessing, and that each one here would be ministered to by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked by a Pharisee, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This, Jesus says, is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our being, with all that we are, heart, soul, mind, strength. And this morning I want to explore just a little bit in the area of a deeper intellectual love for God, focusing on one very important issue in our day, the question of truth. And to move in that direction, I want to start with four short passages of Scripture, and then I want to tell three stories, and then we're going to dive in. So first, an encouragement from Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. The call here is to be renewed, to be transformed. And what is the source of the foundation of that renewal, that transformation. It is, Paul says, the mind. As our mind is changed, as we allow God to influence our reasoning, our way of thinking, our will and our actions, he says, will also be changed. Second, a goal. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There are, in every age and every generation, opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our day, like in Paul's day, many of Christianity's opponents are very smart, educated, sophisticated people who have arguments, who bring arguments against the Christian faith. What was Paul's response? He says our response needs to be to demolish such arguments and to take captive every thought to Christ. Now, how does Paul oppose and demolish the arguments of his anti-Christian opponents? Is it the Texan way, with guns and bullets and cannons? Is it the Canadian way, with polite deference? No, Paul's way is to bring better arguments. You demolish arguments with arguments, with better reasons, with better evidence. Check out his ministry in Acts chapter 17 as an example. But in short, Paul demolished their arguments through his own reasoned arguments, 
his own rational pursuit of God's truth. Incidentally, I, I apologize for making fun of Texas. Um, I can't help myself. I teach in Oklahoma. It just kind of comes naturally. Third, a warning in Colossians chapter 2. Texas and Oklahoma have great sports rivalries, college rivalries. It, it just, yeah, it's part of the landscape there. It's like Edmonton, Calgary, if you know, kind of Alberta. They, they just, you know, we love each other, but we don't, you know. <laughs> Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Again, there are sophisticated, intelligent people around us who promote worldviews and philosophies that are contrary to Christ. And I want to show you a brief video of one such person. This is Richard Dawkins, probably the world's most prominent and outspoken atheist. And he's speaking here about the dangers and evils of religious faith. So let's just look briefly at what he has to say. It's about two minutes long, so not very long. I think that religion should be criticized on intellectual grounds as providing a competitor to the scientific explanation of life and the universe. It's educationally pernicious because it gives the idea that you can uh, evade the responsibility to understand things by postulating some sort of easy explanation, oh, God did it. I think that's educationally pernicious. And as a scientist and, and as an educator, I'm most interested in that. However, there are other problems with religion as well. The idea of the idea of faith, the idea of believing something without any evidence, the idea of believing something without any evidence tends to make people prepared to do terrible things in the name of their God because they believe that their God wants them to be a martyr and they'll go straight to paradise if they do. There's only a minority of them who do that, only an extreme minority. But if the majority of children are brought up to believe that there's some virtue in faith, that there's some virtue in believing something without any evidence, then it will only take a minority to take that really seriously. In a sense, the suicide bombers are the ones who really, really take their religion seriously. Mm. And the gentle ones who don't, who don't do suicide bombing, they're the ones who don't really take it seriously. But as Sam Harris has said, these people really believe what they say they believe. And they believe it without evidence. And if you believe something without evidence, and if you're taught that it's a virtue to believe something without evidence, then there's no argument that can sway you. Because I can't come along and say, look, I think you're wrong about this because... Mm. They say, no, 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 stuff fingers in ears. I've been taught this is faith. You can't touch my faith. Mm. Again, one of the things that Dawkins brings out here is arguments that sound very persuasive, especially the first time you hear him. And for many Christians, Dawkins has been instrumental in undermining the foundation of their faith, making them wonder, hmm, is faith really a virtue? Should I believe what I believe? So there are these hollow philosophies around us. Incidentally, there, there's lots of responses to Dawkins. Here's just two very quick things to point out. First, Christian faith is not belief in the absence of evidence. That's Dawkins' definition of faith. It's a bad definition, and that should never be our understanding of faith. There is plenty of reason and faith for the Christian, sorry, plenty of reason and evidence for the Christian faith. That's what we worked through, some yesterday, some last year, lots of reasons. So Dawkins is just simply wrong on that front. 
Secondly, if he's concerned about people doing evil in the name of their beliefs, he should be more concerned about extreme atheists. Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, they've slaughtered millions and millions in the 20th century alone in the name of their atheistic beliefs. So it's not just religious people who do bad things in the name of beliefs. It's all sorts of people. It's people. Why do people do bad things? Because we have a sinful nature. Christianity can explain that. His beliefs cannot. On two counts, then, at least, Dawkins' arguments against religious faith are weak and unconvincing, but it can sound very persuasive on the surface. So we need to be prepared to face these kinds of philosophies so that we're not taken captive by them. Fourth, a declaration. <clears throat> John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Story time. A college professor who may or may not have been me assigned a term paper to his students. It wasn't me, if you're wondering. He told the students to write on any ethical topic of their choice, requiring only that they back up their thesis, their argument, with reasons and documentation. So one student, an atheist, wrote very eloquently on the topic of moral relativism. He argued that morals are relative. There's no absolute standard of justice or rightness. It's all a matter of opinion. You like chocolate, I like vanilla. You like murder, I like compassion, and so on. His paper provided both his reasons and his documentation. It was the right length, submitted on time, and stylishly presented in a handsome blue folder. After the professor read the entire paper, he wrote on the front cover, F! I don't like blue folders! When the student got the paper back, he was mildly annoyed. He stormed into the professor's office and protested, F, I don't like blue folders. That's, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. You didn't grade my paper on its merits. The professor kind of raised his head. All right, back up, back up, back up. I, I read a lot of papers. Which one was yours again? Which paper was yours? All right. Oh, right. Wasn't your paper the one that said there's no such thing as, as fairness and rightness and justice? Yeah, that was my paper. It was a good paper, the student answered. Then what's this you say about me not being right or fair or just, the professor asked. Didn't your paper argue that it's all a matter of taste? You like chocolate, I like vanilla? Yeah, that's my view. Fine then, the professor said. I don't like blue. You get an F. <laughs> Suddenly the light bulb went off in the student's head. He realized he really did believe in moral absolutes. He at least believed in justice. After all, he was charging his professor with injustice for giving him an F simply because of the color of his folder. And that one simple fact defeated his entire case for relativism. Second story. This is a great story. How many of you have read the book, The Life of Pi? Hands up. Great book. How many of you have seen the movie? Yeah, there's always twice as many hands for that one. <laughs> the novel follows the travails of young Pasin Patel, who survives the sinking of an ocean liner in the middle of the Pacific. 327 days or 227 days or something like that on the open ocean. And at the end of the novel, he is interviewed by Japanese insurance investigators who have to sort out, okay, what happened? Who gets the insurance money and all this stuff? So they come to Mexico where Pai is washed up on shore and they're in the hospital and they're interviewing him trying to figure out what happened. And Pai gives them two accounts of how he survived on the open ocean. In the first account, he is accompanied by a Bengal tiger named... Richard Parker, right? And he encounters magical islands and flying fish and all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff. It's a beautiful story, right? In the second story he tells them, there are four original survivors of the shipwreck. Pai, 
his mother, the ship's cook, and an injured sailor. The ship's cook butchers and eats the sailor and Pi's mother before Pi kills the cook. So he gives them these two accounts. Both are somewhat unsettling. And the Japanese insurance investigators are trying to figure out which story is true. And so at the very end of the book, we come to this kind of climactic conversation between the two. Pi now turns the tables and asks them a series of questions. You cannot prove which story is true and which is not. You must take my word for it. I, I guess so. In both stories, the ship sinks, my entire family dies, and I suffer. Yes, that's true. So tell me, since it makes no factual difference to you and you cannot prove the question either way, which story do you prefer? Which is the better story? The story with the animals or the story without animals? Hmm. And so the investigators sit there and they think for a minute, and eventually, after conferring in Japanese so that he can't understand them, they say, the story with animals, the story with animals, that's the better story. And Pai says, thank you. And so it goes with God. If nothing can be proven to be true, if no individual story can be established as trustworthy knowledge, then all that remains is, which story do you prefer? And so it is with God in a postmodern relativistic worldview. Which religion is true? We don't know. All religions claim to be true, but we have no way of discerning which one is really true. In the end, all that we do is adopt the religion that we prefer. One last story for you. 2,000 years or so ago, a young man is arrested on the charge of treason and sedition, brought before the governor for judgment. The governor questions the accused, and in the written account of their encounter, we overhear this exchange. What is it you have done? The governor asked. The accused said, look, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But now my kingdom is from another place. Aha, you are a king then, the governor said. The accused answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What? is truth, the governor asked. This encounter we find in John chapter 18, and it ends with perhaps the most profound question that Pilate could have asked at that point in time. What is truth? You know, incidentally, I sometimes wonder, what was the tone of voice that Pilate used with that question? Haven't you ever wondered that? You know, was it like a sincerely seeking tone of voice? Jesus, what is truth? Or was it like a derisive mocking, what's truth? Haven't you ever wondered that? Don't you wish we had like those kind of you know, like they have in stage plays where they have in brackets the kind of tone of voice they use? We just don't know. This is a question that philosophers have pondered for centuries and in our day has become a major point of contention. I think it's fair to say that our postmodern society is embarked on a flight from truth, a running away from the notion that there is such a thing as binding objective truth. This flight from truth, I think, is evidenced in the student-professor interaction in my first story, as well as the ending in The Life of Pi. It is widely believed that there is no such thing as truth, particularly in the moral and religious spheres of life. Our burden this morning is to set out on a robust defense of truth in an age of radical relativism. In a typical group of about 200 North Americans, roughly 125 of them will be some form of relativist. They will embrace a perspective that truth depends on your situation, your culture, your point of view. There is no such thing as objective or absolute truth. 
If that is you, if you are one of those 125, my hope this morning, my goal, I apologize in advance, is to change your mind. My hope is that we will look at some things together that will cause you to reevaluate your understanding of truth and relativism. If you're one of the 75, I hope to give you some tools to understand why it is that we can confidently embrace the objectivity of truth and then proclaim that truth to a world that doesn't believe in truth. Let's start then with an examination of this thing we call truth. We're going to start from the back door looking at what truth is, and then we're going to circle around and look at relativism and respond to it. First thing to understand is that truth is objective and absolute. What is true is true for all people at all places at all times, whether they know it or not, believe it or not, and like it or not. In other words, if something is true, it is the case for all people. If 2 plus 2 equals 4, then it is the case for all people in all places at all times that when you take 2 and you add 2 to it, you will come out with 4. Now, I understand mathematicians, base 3 math would be different. Okay, just bear with me. You know what I mean, okay? 2 plus 2 equals 4 is the case that corresponds to reality for all people. Truth is this corresponding relationship between what is proclaimed on the one hand, a truth statement, and reality on the other hand. Truth is such that what is said matches what exists in reality. So consider the statement, God exists. The statement is either true or false. Either God exists or God doesn't exist. If God does exist, then millions of atheists are simply wrong in their beliefs. When they say, well, I don't believe that God exists, therefore it's true for me that God doesn't exist. Look, if God exists in reality, their belief is irrelevant. They are simply wrong in their belief. Your refusal to believe something has no bearing whatsoever upon its truthfulness or lack thereof. Truth is true regardless of whether you believe it. If, on the other hand, God does not exist, then stating that God exists is somewhat like stating that leprechauns exist. Interesting, but meaningless. It's insufficient to argue that, well, for me, God exists, so it's true for me that God exists. That's like me saying, it's true for me that leprechauns exist. It's true for me that I'm the president of the United States. I might be better than the other two clowns, but that's all right. Any reasonable person might respond that my self-delusions do not result in a relativistic truth. Rather, they result in me believing something that is false. Relativism, on the other hand, is the claim, the belief, that true statements or truth claims do not hold for all people in all places at all times. That is, what is true depends upon the person or the context. Is it true that God exists? Well, that depends upon your perspective, the relativist says. Is slavery immoral? Well, that depends on the time period you live in. In 21st century Canada, obviously immoral. 18th century America, not so much. The truthfulness of the statement, slavery is wrong, is relative to the individual, the geographical context, and or the time period. The relativist argues there is no objective truth, no truth that holds, that corresponds to reality for all people in all places at all times. Now, I want to look at the rational implications or the rational coherence of relativism, but first it's important to note the consequences of it. What if relativism were accurate? If it actually was the case that there is no truth, what would follow from that? What are some of the consequences? First, we need to note that truth is an essential concept in philosophy, in science, and in many other areas of life. The pervasive mantra that truth is relative undermines education, undermines inquiry. If there is no truth, my discipline is dead. Philosophy is a pursuit of wisdom, which requires an acquaintance and application of truth, is dead. 
It's one of the reasons why one of the foremost philosophers in America in the 20th century left philosophy to become a teacher of classics. Richard Rorty grew up a philosopher, embraced a relativistic view of truth, and eventually said, hi, you know what? If I'm right on this, then there's no point in being a philosopher. So he moved and started teaching in the English department and taught classics. I'm not demeaning the English department. I'm just saying this is what caused him to move from one to the other. But if there is no truth, then we cannot teach things as if they are objectively true. And this doesn't just apply to statements like God exists or slavery is wrong. It applies in other areas too. We cannot say it's objectively true that slavery is wrong. We can't say it's objectively true that God exists. We can't say that it's objectively true that the Holocaust occurred. We can't say that it's objectively true that the sun is the center of the solar system and that the earth revolves around the sun. Why not? Because there is no truth. If there is no objective truth, then it is not true that the earth revolves around the sun. It is not true that the earth is round. Does this make sense? These are the implications of relativism if you take it to its logical extent. You cannot teach things as if they are true. You can only teach them as if they are your opinions. Do I really have cancer, doctor? Well, I think so. That's my opinion. Should I act upon it? Well, I think you should. I don't know. Does that help? Now, not only does relativism have some pretty catastrophic consequences, it also turns out to be irrational in the extreme. Consider the statement, there is no objective truth. That is, there is nothing that is true for all people in all places at all times. Now, ask a very simple question, three words. Is that true? Is it true that there is no absolute truth? Let's put it another way, because that's kind of pejorative, right? To ask, is it true that there is no truth? That's like, yeah, okay, that, that's like asking, have I stopped beating my wife? You can't win no matter what you say, okay? So let's put it a different way. You say, sir, that there is no objective truth. Well, does that apply to me and to you? Does that apply to all people? Does it hold for all people in all places at all times that there is no objective truth? Okay, now we've asked the question a little bit more fairly, a little bit more gently, right? We're asking the same thing, but we've asked it more gently. Now, this question, there seem to be two possible answers to the question. Is it the case, does it hold for all people that there is no object of truth? What are the two possible answers? Sorry? Yes or no? All right, so what are the consequences if the answer to the question is yes? It holds for all people, it applies to all people that there is no such thing as object of truth. What follows from that? There is something that is true that is objectively true why because this statement applies to all people in all places at all times it applies to all people in other words it is true that there is no truth so if the answer to the question is yes it applies to all people then relativism is false because there is at least one thing that is objectively true does that follow does it make sense you tracking with me we're okay not if you get it throw your hands up in the air if you're like huh okay what if the answer is no Okay, so is it true, does it hold for all people that there is no object of truth? If the answer is yes, then relativism is false because there's something that is true. What if the answer is no, it's not the case for all people that there is nothing that's objectively true? Then what does that mean? Well, that means that the statement is false. They're, they're admitting that the statement is false, right? They're saying no, it's not the case for all people that there is no objective truth. Well, if the statement is false, why should we be concerned about it? Let me put it this way. 
Did you know? Did you know? Okay, Chris, I'm going to ask you, and then you've got to ask me a question back. Okay, I hope you know the question that you need to ask. Did you know that there is a purple elephant on the far side of Jupiter? No. <laughs> you heard his question. He said, is there? In other words, is that true that there is one there? Well, no, it's not true that there is one there. But isn't it exciting? Okay, you get the point, I hope, right? Who cares what you say if you admit that what you say is not true? Okay, so two ways of answering the question. Either way the question is answered, relativism is false. Is it the case that there is no truth? Yes, then there is something that is true, namely that there is no truth. This is what we call a self-defeating statement. Or if you like fancy words, it's self-referentially absurd. It defeats itself. It's like sitting in a tree, sitting on a branch, and then reaching out and cutting off the branch that you're sitting on, the part closer to the trunk. What happens to you? You fall down and you hurt yourself, okay? It's self-defeating. If it's true, it is false. If it's false, it is false. Either way, it's false and not rationally compelling. Relativism is a deeply flawed perspective. Now, we need to note that opinion is not the same thing as truth. Opinion, unlike truth, is relative to the individual. So I could say chocolate ice cream is better than vanilla ice cream. That would be a statement of opinion. Now, the sentence sounds like a truth claim, which unfortunately confuses the issue for many of us. It sometimes assumed that since it has the same grammatical structure, chocolate is better than vanilla, 2 plus 2 is equal to 4, that they must also be statements of the same type. But they are not. One expresses a personal opinion, the other makes a truth claim about reality. But if we change the statement a bit and say, I prefer chocolate ice cream, then it becomes an objective truth claim about my preferences. The sentence is expressing a personal preference, and in that sense, it's relative to the individual that says it. But nonetheless, the statement is either true or false. It's either true that I prefer chocolate, or it's false that I prefer chocolate. Alethea, is it true or false that I prefer chocolate to vanilla? True. Amen. Right? Yeah? Chocolate is better? Never mind. Finally, beliefs are subjective. Beliefs are relative to the individual and prone to error or falsehood. The belief God does not exist may in fact be wrong, as we believe it is. That does not make the truth of God's existence relative to the individual. Rather, it makes the atheist's belief about God's non-existence false. So in the 15th century, when the majority of scientists believed that the sun revolved around the earth, it was not true for them. Their belief, they believed it was true, but their beliefs were wrong. They were objectively mistaken. The truth was that the earth revolves around the sun. They just did not know it. The truth did not change between the 15th and the 18th centuries. Scientific understanding changed. Belief changes, opinion changes, our understanding of what is true changes. What does not change is truth itself. The existence of multiple perspectives should not cloud our thinking. Truth is an objective reality. Now, what does all of this have to do with the Christian faith. What does all of this have to do with Christianity? At the heart of it, Christianity is a religion that makes several objective truth claims about reality. It's not a religion of personal preference or subjective opinion. So, pop quiz time. I need to hear answers. Put your hand out so I can just call on one at a time, all right? What are some of the objective truth claims that Christianity makes? Some things that Christianity says are true about the world. Anybody know something that Christianity says is true? Come on, don't be shy. It's not the time to be shy. 
All have sinned. Very good. Every person has sinned. Excellent. Another. Sorry? There is one God. Excellent. Somebody else help me out, guys. One God, three persons. Somebody was here yesterday morning. Good. Okay, another one. Sorry? God created the world. God is creator. Excellent. Very good. Any others? There's, there's a whole bunch, right? I, you guys are just being shy. That's okay. There are some very important truths claims Christianity makes. Nobody got the main one. The most important historical truth claim of the Christian faith is Jesus was raised from the dead. The resurrection. This is the central historical truth claim of our faith. These are four central truth claims of Christianity. The point here is simply that these are not personal beliefs that Christians would rather have to be true than false. These are not just subjective opinions. We're saying these are statements that are true about the world. They are not just matters of opinion. The main question then becomes, are they in fact true? It's not, do I believe them? It's, are they true? Do we have good reason for believing that they are true? Now, that question takes us into the realm of what we call worldview analysis or testing for truth. How do we test beliefs, perspectives, to discern whether or not they are true? So I'm going to suggest that there are three tests for worldview truth. Tests that can be applied to all religions, all philosophies, all worldviews. And when you apply these three tests, you'll see that Christianity comes through with flying colors, particularly when compared to other perspectives. So I want to just really briefly, as we come towards the close, quickly suggest these three worldview truth tests and suggest some ways that we can apply them. Okay? So the three tests are internal, external, and existential consistency. The first worldview... Oh, there they are. Sorry. Getting ahead of myself. Oh, there. That's a nice slide, isn't that? Nice picture. Very cool. The first worldview test is internal consistency or logical coherence. A worldview must make sense of itself. If the tenets of a worldview fit together then that worldview or those components are more likely to be true. If, on the other hand, two worldview beliefs are logically inconsistent, then those worldview components cannot possibly both be true. Now, some worldviews run into immediate problems with the laws of logical thought. So, the opening illustration this morning demonstrates some of the logical problems inherent to moral relativism. The moral relativist argues that moral standards are different for different people in different times and different cultures. They go on to insist that these differences aren't just descriptive of the way people act, but actually prescriptive. That is, there is no objective morality. There is no standard that applies to all people in all places at all times. So if one culture practices incest and another says it's taboo, neither culture is right in any kind of objective sense. There is no universal standard. There's only individual or cultural standards for morality. Now, the relativist runs into immediate problems when somebody cuts them off in traffic, or fails him for a well-written philosophical position paper, or punches him in the nose. The typical relativist will insist that something wrong has been done to him in each case. To expand the problem, the relativist will also likely agree that it was wrong for the Nazis to exterminate Jewish people in concentration camps, that it is wrong to cut off the left ear of every second baby girl born, that it is wrong to own another human being as a piece of personal property to do with as you please. But of course, if all of those practices are wrong, then he holds that they are wrong, not just for him or for people in his circle, but they are actually wrong for all people. Moral relativism, the way that most people hold it, is actually incoherent. It's logically inconsistent. 
It holds contradictory beliefs. So here's one way of trying to visually work it out. I apologize for the technical philosophy, but hopefully it makes sense. Premise one, owning another human being as a piece of personal property is objectively wrong and should not be permitted. Okay? In other words, slavery is wrong. That's the moral statement. Okay? Now, I'm presuming here that the moral relativist is going to agree with that statement. I, I don't think that's a stretch of the imagination. Most moral relativists in Western society are going to say, yes, in fact, slavery is wrong, should not be permitted. Extrapolating from that, if it's true that, mor- that slavery is morally wrong, then there is at least one thing in the world that is morally wrong, okay? that is objectively wrong. Does that make sense? If slavery is wrong, there's at least one thing that is morally wrong. Fair? That follows? However, according to moral relativism as a philosophy, there is no objective moral right. There is no objective moral wrong. There is nothing that is objectively morally right or wrong and applies to all people in all places at all times. When you put those two statements together, you have on the one hand, there is nothing that's objectively wrong and there is something that's objectively wrong. What do we call that? We call that a contradiction. They cannot possibly both be true. It would be like if I said, I cannot speak a word of English. What's the problem with that? I said that in English. I can't possibly be correct. It would be like I said, there is nobody white in this room. But I am white. There's nobody white in this room. There's at least one person who's white in this room. That is a logical contradiction. Both statements cannot possibly be true. That's what the moral relativist is left with. Okay? Either it is false that slavery is wrong, or it is false that there is nothing that's objectively wrong. Most moral relativists, I think about 90% of them, when push comes to shove, are not actually relativistic. That is, they do believe in objective right and wrong. They believe that things like slavery and genocide are objectively wrong, and we should seek to stop them from happening wherever they are happening. I think the vast majority of moral relativists are like that. There are some that are not, and we'll talk about them momentarily. Now, examining moral relativism can help to bring that inconsistency to light. And I think oftentimes, in some conversations, when you expose that internal inconsistency to a moral relativist, they'll say, hey, you you know what, you're right. I really do believe in moral objective truth. Hey, we've made progress. This is a good thing. So, worldview analysis can bring these kinds of problems to light and help people to change. The second truth test is what we call evidential correspondence or external consistency. A worldview must not only make sense of itself, it must also make sense of reality. Worldviews must account for what we know to be true about the world. So if a worldview says that X is true of the world, well, we're justifiably persuaded that X is not true of the world, the worldview is probably false in that respect. So many worldview beliefs seem to lack such evidential correspondence. Worldviews that deny the reality of pain and death have difficulty explaining the inner world's response to the body meeting a fast-moving bus. The worldview does not possess factual adequacy. It doesn't explain the universal experience of pain and death. I would also argue that a worldview that perceives human beings as biologically programmed or determined runs counter to the strong intuition we all have of making truly free choices. Additionally, a worldview that embraces an an eternal or self-creating universe is falsified by scientific evidence demonstrating a spatio-temporal beginning to the universe at the Big Bang. A worldview that denies the existence of a divine creator fails in the face of empirical evidence of transcendent design. 
A worldview that embraces the inherent goodness of all human beings is falsified by looking at our own heart, reading the daily news, or following the U.S. presidential race. In short, it's essential that we be self-reflectively aware and we expose worldviews to the test of, test of external consistency or evidential correspondence. If one's worldview does not match up with reality, we need to adjust our worldview beliefs accordingly. Finally, a third test. Existential consistency or pragmatic satisfaction. In order to be a worldview worth holding, our worldview must make sense of life. We must be able to live consistently within it. So again, consider moral relativism. Again, I think 90% of moral relativists are not consistent relativists. They really do believe in objective moral truth. They just haven't had to examine the cliche belief that they have in moral relativism. But there are a small percentage that really don't believe in any kind of objective morality. So one of my favorite stories comes from an atheist philosopher that Richard Dawkins mentioned, Sam Harris, um, who is a moral realist. He believes in objective moral truth, even though he can't give a foundation for objective moral truth, but he believes in objective moral truth. And he's absolutely appalled at some of his atheist brethren who don't believe in moral truth. So he's at a conference once, and he's interacting with a, a female um, teacher who's just given a presentation, and he goes up afterwards, and they engage in this long sparring session. And he says, so you say there's nothing that's wrong for all cultures to practice. And she's like, that's right, there's nothing that's objectively wrong. So he says, if a culture says it's okay to practice incest and we can't say that's wrong, that's correct. We can't say that's wrong because there's nothing that's objectively wrong. So we can't say that it's wrong to cut off the left ear of every second baby girl born. That's right, we can't say that's wrong. We can't say that female genital mutilation is wrong. That's right, we can't say that that's wrong. And she holds to it all the way through. She says, yeah, you're right. There's absolutely... If there was a culture that said every woman born should be immediately enslaved and then murdered when she hits 21, yet we can't say that that's wrong. That's just that culture's practice, what they believe to be right, and we have no right to judge them. And he says, what do you do with somebody like that? He says, you can no longer have a rational conversation. And it's really an amusing anecdote to have these two atheists going head to head on the question of moral relativism. Avicenna was a medieval Muslim philosopher who once noted that anyone who denies the law of non-contradiction should be beaten and burned until he admits that to be beaten is not the same as not to be beaten, and to be burned is not the same as not to be burned. Some suggest that his advice could be adapted to apply to moral relativism. Anyone who denies that some things are objectively wrong should be beaten and burned for fun until he admits that, to be, that it is objectively wrong to beat and burn an individual for fun. I don't recommend doing that, but Avicenna would. As C.S. Lewis noted two generations ago, the moral relativist simply cannot live by his own precepts. The one who insists that there is no transcendent right and wrong in one breath complains in his next breath that somebody has treated him unfairly. Moral relativism, when held consistently, logically, is an unlivable worldview. Now, the test of existential consistency is very difficult to apply. What is livable to one might be unlivable to another. But nonetheless, pragmatic dissatisfaction within a worldview is often a prime contributor to worldview self-examination. All right, we need to come to a close. The truth matters. If your doctor tells you that you have a rapidly advancing form of lung cancer that must be operated on immediately in order to save your life, how do you treat his words? Are they professional opinion, personal preference, or medical truth? If Jesus insists he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one will come to the Father except through him, do you treat his words as prophetic opinion, personal preference, or religious truth? In both cases, an objective truth claim is being made. Truth matters. It has life and death implications here on this earth. 
It has life and death implications for eternity. The Christian faith is not just someone's personal religious preference. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a theological assertion that I happen to like. Belief in Jesus as Savior and Lord is not like the belief that chocolate is better than vanilla. Christianity is either true or false. If it's false, empty the baptismal tank. Don't bother with the charade of church. Join a country club. But if it's true, then everything hinges upon the peasant who walked the shores of Galilee 2,000 years ago. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about how Christianity is my personal preference, my religious opinion. Instead, let us boldly proclaim that Jesus is the truth. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And let us hold unswervingly to the truth that we profess. You see, Pilate asked a very poignant question when he interrogated the incarnate Son of God. What is truth? But Jesus had answered him four chapters earlier. I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am truth, Jesus insists. His words were not popular. They were difficult to hear in the pluralistic, relativistic Roman Empire. They're no more popular today. They're difficult to hear in pluralistic, postmodern, relativistic North America. But the words need to be heard just as clearly today as they did then. Jesus is the truth, and the truth matters. Let us not be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies of relativism. Instead, let us demolish the relativistic pretensions that set themselves up against the Lord through the application of clear-headed, logic and reason let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we come to love the lord our god more fully with heart and soul and mind in an age of postmodern relativism let us affirm that reality that jesus is the way the truth and the life and let us invite all men to come to the father through jesus christ the son amen